And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the program. We come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times at richarddugan.com. We also have podcasts. Uh, we go from the broadcast to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, many other locations that you folks are reposting to. And thank you so much for uh, extending our outreach to folks. And now we're on YouTube. That's right. As of um, eh, probably October 2020, we started. Uh, uh, we were doing Zoom and Skype a long time ago, but I wasn't necessarily recording the videos for any particular reason, so I didn't save them. But now we're doing it on YouTube, so you can go to Richard Dugan or Tell Me Your Story, look for the guy with the hat, and uh, you can watch these interviews. I actually enjoy being able to see my guests, and it's a lot of fun, so I hope you'll enjoy it too. We also hope that you will go to our guest website, which we will be giving you shortly so that you can continue your evolutionary process and continue your growth and transformation into a better human being, a better spiritual being, if you will. And that is not to say that you're not good now. Please do not get me wrong. You are fantastic right where you are right now. You're perfect just being who you are. But as they say, there's always room for improvement. Hey, I'm the first one in line for that one. So uh, we hope that you will uh, go to our guest website. We'll give that to you in just a few moments. We also hope that you will uh, like what we're doing and like to support it financially. Uh, we have a PayPal account for your security as well as ours uh, so that you can support us with any amount. We'll take energetic support as well. And also participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, where we ask you to go within to spend some time Finding that still, quiet, calm, peaceful place where you can re-energize and recharge, get refocused, listening to that still, small voice that will guide you uh, literally every step of the way through your life, through your journey. And let me also explain to you that this is not about giving up your free will, okay? This is not giving up your individuality. This is actually exercising it by listening to that still small voice, by being a part of, shall we call it the big picture and doing whatever it is that you have uh, come here to do, what you've been brought here to do. We hope that you will uh, you listen to that still small voice. I do all the time. And there are times when it guides me to do something. I'm going, you know, that, that's, that makes no sense. That, that's counter to what I learned. Well, guess what? Turns out it worked out. It worked out just fine. So please take the time to, uh, to go within in that regard. Our program today, I think you're going to enjoy because we're going to be talking surprise, surprise with an author. Well, maybe not so surprising because she's written a number of books. She has uh, been uh, here with us. I often say that my 60 years here on the planet is nothing more than less than a puff of smoke. Uh, hers is not as much less than a puff of smoke, but we are glad that she is with us today. We are glad that she's sharing her story, her insights, and her name is Maria Espinosa. Maria, thank you so much for joining us all the way from, am I correct, New Mexico? Yes. Thank you so much. Via for, Zoom. Uh, via Zoom. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Although I'd love to be in Santa Barbara by the ocean. Well, um, you know, we've we I've joked many times because I'm I'm originally from Arizona, 
that we were going to actually get a giant jigsaw and cut California off and let it float out into the Pacific so we <laughs> would have beachfront property. We already have the beach, lots of sand, <laughs> but no beachfront property with an ocean view. Uh, and I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's the reason I moved here, although my goal, Maria, was more to get to the ocean. I didn't care. For the most part, I didn't care where. I just needed to be closer to the ocean. And next thing I know, I'm with my second wife here in Santa Barbara for now, going on 15 years, and it's uh, it's been great. Mm. Yes. You are uh, you're not just an author. Uh, you are a poet. You are also, um, am I correct, a translator? Yes, from French to English. Predominantly French. So that is, yeah. is that a language you speak or that you are just able to translate into English? Because I know there's a difference. Well, I lived in France for two years. Before that, I had been studying French in school since about the eighth grade. Okay. But it was really living in Paris for two years that got my French so that it was something I spoke. Also, my first husband I met in Paris, and our common language was French. He was from Chile, so he spoke Spanish and very little English, and I spoke very little Spanish at the time. So we spoke French. Well. And our daughter's first words were in French. Oh, wow. Wow. You know, that has to really be something to... Uh, I, I still don't fully comprehend... Uh, an individual's ability, especially at that age of their development, to actually pick up the language. I mean, I've taken English courses, all right? I took one year of, uh, no, one semester of Spanish in high school. Mm. I remember a little of it. And um, to, to, to quote a comedian who used to have a television program and do all kinds of stand-up, he used to say, you know, when, his f when he was around people who uh, were speaking another language, he says, I just listened for my name. I just listened, and I would just listen for Ricardo. And if they were speaking about me, I knew that. If not, I'd move on. <laughs> <laughs> so how long have you been translating? Well, that was kind of an anomaly. I'm not... A professional translator and I've only translated one big work which was a classic novel by George Sand called Lelia. It was an autobiographical novel. I found it had never been translated and I was intrigued. I was intrigued because it was a very personal kind of novel and it resonated with a lot that I was going through with emotionally at that time. Mm -hmm. It was hard to translate because even though I speak French or I spoke it when I was in France, to translate a whole novel is a whole level of expertise, which I didn't have, but I did it. Just took a long time. And you also have uh, several other items added to your uh, list, your resume, so to speak. Uh, uh, you know, your... Um, you're, you, I mean, again, I mentioned that you're an author. Um, you have an autobiographical series as well. Uh, and uh, you basically, um, I, I, love, I love the beginning of your story. It wasn't quite a cold and, uh, you know, what was it, uh, the, 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 the typical line you hear? It was a dark and stormy night. Well, in your case, it was a cold, uh, a snowy January night that you came into this world, and according to, I guess, what is it, your mother, you came into this world, well, you almost came into this world 
backwards. Yes. Do you do you see the entrance, your entrance into this world, uh, as rather significant and very very symbolic of of your life up to this point? I unfortunately I do. A doctor had to go in with the forceps and turn me around. Yes. Okay. And how do you think that that uh, uh, aspect um, uh, exemplifies your life as you have lived it? Have you had a lot of situations where people have have had to uh, not not so much forcibly turn you around because you were going in a direction that they didn't think you should be going in? Oh, very much so. In fact, it became almost a personal how can I say battle between my mother and me, even before I was born, mm. she said, I looked at you and you were trying to kill me by going in backwards, but the wonderful doctor had to turn you around. And then she looked at you and you had angry black eyes <laughs> and she knew I wasn't going to be an easy child. And I was not easy. I was very hard on my mother. She was hard on me. I'd say we were, in a pitched battle almost from the time of birth. And yet we really loved each other. We were very close. And she had had ominous dreams before I was born. She was walking on the beach and there were a group of children and they were friendly, except for one little girl who was not friendly with her at all. And that was her fear. And that materialized in me when I was born. Mm. Sad. Now, and so I... I I write novels about her. This and that was going to sort of be my next uh, uh, question in terms of the direction we would go. Uh, but I, I also wanted to uh, ask you, uh, I know that there are people who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, whose parents are still alive. Now, my parents, I'm 60, and my father will be 90 in 2021, and my mother 97. And they've been married, will have been married uh, in 2021. They will have been married 20, uh, 60, 66, 66, 60, I think 65 or 66 years hmm. uh, married. And um, so they're still doing well. They're, uh, they're telling us to stay away because, and I don't want to go <laughs> near them until this thing is over. Um, I would take it that your parents have both passed? Yes. Why? I'm curious. Why are they telling you to stay away? Uh, because of uh, they don't want uh, to catch anything that I might be carrying. Oh. Uh, uh -huh. and, and I don't want to be responsible for them uh, departing this world sooner than they want to. Uh, that's yeah. their choice, not mine. And so I, I honor that. We Zoom. We f I phone them every few weeks just to see how they're doing. And they're always doing well, which is always good to hear. Uh, mm. I'm curious as to how long it's been since uh, uh, since your mother passed. She passed in 1983, quite a long time ago. Mm. My father passed in 2002. So he lived to be about 92. Now and She died when she was in her early 70s. So, and, and you say you were close, very close to her. What about your father? Um, also close and a much also ambiguous relationship with both of them. In fact, I think I've spent my lifetime trying to figure them out by writing stories about them. Mm -hmm. Well, your current story, uh, the current work that uh, we're here talking with you about, of course, uh, and we want to do just that is 
is discussing, and if I'm uh, 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 if I'm correct in in what we're going to be talking about in one aspect, suburban souls. Yes. Um, give us a just give us a little synopsis. I want people to go to your website, which folks is wonderfully mariaespinosa.com all right and i will be linked to your website as well so people can go to uh, directly to it but tell us a little bit about uh, suburban souls okay first i want to say it's maria espinosa with an s espinosa.com okay and the story is takes place in the 70s in the bay area the san francisco bay area in a suburb, the suburb itself becomes a character in terms of its relative isolation in the nuclear family. The couple, the major characters, Saul and Gerda, are people who have barely escaped the Holocaust. They left Germany as children just in time to escape being put in concentration camps. But this fear is all around them. They were so close. Saul's father was in a concentration cramp briefly. And so this trauma is with them, added on to their own personal family dynamics. And they have, they live in an affluent suburb in the East Bay of San Francisco. They have three children, two girls who are just becoming adolescent and an infant boy. And they really are not able to hear each other, not able to understand each other. And this is the tragedy of it. All their internal and external conflict embodies itself in their oldest daughter, Hannah. The wife, Gerda, is a real case she her boundaries just crumble she's really going through a, a breakdown throughout the whole book she un, she's unhinged and she un, unhinges everyone around her and Saul who's a scientist keeps on trying to be functional be productive be creative in his own work while he has this very difficult family dynamic at home with his wife. She, each of them are miserable because they really don't hear or get the other person. They're closed off. Mm. Does this story mirror in any way your own personal life? Is some of this, uh, though it does, it's a novel, uh, many authors, yeah. they in, end up maybe unintentionally and unconsciously incorporating aspects of relationships they had with siblings, parents, and so forth. Oh, very much. In a way, I think everything that a writer writes is somehow autobiographical. You're embodying parts of yourself, whether you're writing about somebody off on Mars or whether you're writing about insects, you're still writing about aspects mm. of yourself. Yeah. And in a sense, each character in the novel is an aspect of myself. Um, I drew a lot on my mother and her own sense of isolation while she was raising us in a suburban house in Long Island. Uh, she was a cosmopolitan, highly educated woman. 
and she loved being in New York City, in the city. And here she was with three children and a husband who went off to his studio. He was a sculptor. He'd go off to the city every day and who knows what adventures he had. And she was home with three small children, one troublesome older daughter, me. And it was not fun. Mm. You also have another novel entitled Secret Jew. Oh, Incognito. Journey incognito, of I beg your Jew. pardon. Yes, Incognito. Yeah. Well, okay, then. I- <laughs> that um, is about Jews who had to go undercover during the time of the Spanish Inquisition back in the 15th century. Oh, wow. And again, I think I imagined who my own family might have been 500 years ago. Mm. Because they had always been very, how can I say, uneasy about their religion. My mother, they, in fact, when I wrote on my college application that I was Jewish, she had a fit. You're not Jewish. You're only by culture. And I said, well, Hitler would not have made that distinction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so strangely, because I grew up really lacking any firm religious structure, and with my family so undercutting the fact of my Jewishness, all my novels have a Jewish thread running through them. Mm. In fact, my very first novel was about a prostitute in Manhattan. And out of the blue, an old Jewish man suddenly inserted himself into the book and took over as the main character. He had escaped the Holocaust because he'd been working abroad, but however, his children and his wife have perished and he cannot get over that incredible guilt that he feels. He's a very kind man, but he just suddenly, I had not planned him at all. And he suddenly came in and just took over the novel. Hmm. When you uh, have been sitting down to write, uh, and again, everybody has a different process uh, and so forth. I'm curious, because uh, the the way you phrased that makes it sound as though the stories sort of almost write themselves through you, and it's it's I almost a, a channeled kind of thing. Is that is that how you experience it? Well, at the beginning, that's very much what I experienced. Only the writing was not that easy. You know, draft after draft after draft, rewrite after rewrite to get through in words what was inside my mind or my emotions, which didn't come out easily into words, much more easily into images or into emotions. Mm -hmm. So for me, the hard thing was translating this medium of energy that I felt into words. And yeah, I, I think I began with channeling and now I'm more in just telling stories that I want very much to write. And at the same time, I'm open to letting more energy come in through me. Now you speak, of course, about your uh, your um, Jewishness from a cultural perspective. Uh, I'm curious uh, about uh, if you have uh, any um, more metaphysical or spiritual experiences, because you've heard, I'm sure you've heard, of, of people uh, down through history who a lot of what they've done 
has been, as as the term goes, has been channeled. I, I think of people like uh, Edgar Casey, for example. Uh, he yeah. had his own particular philosophy or belief system, the belief that he had as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And yet he still did this channeling to help people. Uh, even though my understanding from what I recall reading, he struggled with it for most of his life, even, even though he still did it. Uh, it, it, it grated, so to speak. Uh, it went against the grain of his of his belief system in a conscious sense. But he also knew that he had to do this because it was it was part of why he was here. Uh, do you ever have any kind of um, uh, spiritual or yes, mystical types of experiences? Yes. I To begin with, I didn't want to be a writer. I wanted to be an actress, a dancer, a singer. But I always felt from about the age of 11 that this is what I was born to do, whether I liked it or not. I might <laughs> be a good writer or a bad writer. I might or might not ever get published. But somehow that was what I was born on earth to do. That was my karma. And I still feel that. I thought after I wrote my last book, after I wrote Suburban Souls, now I can relax. Now I can take up knitting. I can go study painting. I can take it easy. But no, I can't. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yes, very much. And I have to say that when I began channeling Max, the result of that was that my daughter began attending a Hebrew school. And she didn't want the reform. She wanted the conservative and she had a bar mitzvah, which my parents pointedly ignored. <laughs> and all my friends came. <laughs> oh. and, and oddly enough, that she was wearing a Jewish scar, a star that one of our friends had given her. And I took her to a Greek dance because I had recently had surgery. And she'd been helping me recover and I wanted to have her have a little fun. So we went to a Greek dance a taverna where they had Greek dancing in Berkeley back in the 70s. And there a man looked at her Jewish star and said, oh, how interesting. And where's your mother? Which is how I met my second husband. It's just all kind of karmic in a way. Yeah, I very much feel that I was here born with a kind of karma to play out with writing. And the universe has sort of reinforced your writing career by um, giving you or awarding the works that you've put out. You you are an, you are not just an author; you're an award-winning author. Yes, I guess I'm. I'm fortunate that way that I've gotten some recognition. I feel very fortunate. How does how does that feel from the standpoint of this is just what I'm doing. You know, you want to recognize me fine, but it doesn't matter. I have to write. I mean, I finally accepted my, my, (laughs) my uh, uh, career path, my life's purpose. You want to recognize me fine, but it's not going to change anything because I'm still going to write. Yeah. But it's always nice to get recognized Mm -hmm. and it gets quite bleak when you write things and they keep getting rejected. No, this is not what we want. We want something different. No, but I just keep on doing what I feel I have to do. Now, because of the fact that it is uh, listed in your, on your website, MariaEspinosa.com. I, 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 
I feel I am not violating any uh, chivalrous uh, uh, acts by saying that you have been on this planet for 81 years, correct? Yes. I'll be 82 in a few weeks. Oh, my goodness. Well, um, you know, I, I, I came up with a phrase back in my mid-20s when I was interviewing people that I've uh, tried to hold on to as much as possible. And now I'm in that category of which I speak where you hear the phrase, of course, senior citizens. Well, I don't like that phrase at all. I prefer seasoned citizens. Yeah. We, you know, you, my father is a little more well-seasoned than you or a little more well-seasoned than I and so forth and so on. Do you yeah. feel your life's experiences uh, have value to the extent that you want to share them with the rest of the world. And does that come through in your novels or are you thinking about one day maybe writing your own memoir if you haven't already? Um, it was always easier for me to write in fiction rather than as a straightforward memoir. In fact, two of my novels, Longing and Dying Unfinished, are very autobiographical, at least to some degree, because mm -hmm. always I need to make things work into a story. Mm -hmm. And that I felt I had to share with the world for some, the previous novels I wrote, I felt I have to share because this is a message that somehow I'm supposed to get through to help enlarge people's consciousness. Although whoever, not that many people have read my books, but whoever, whoever reads them, I meant to do what I can. And even if I just influence one person, that person again, connects with more people. So there's a kind of widening circle. Yeah. It's like that drop in the still water and the ripples. Yeah. They just keep going out further and further and further. Yeah. I, I feel like the drop in the water in some ways. Yes. So, and now that I'm 80, almost 82, I look back a lot at my previous life, a lot of review they say that when you die, you review your past life. Well, I feel I'm doing it now in this life. <laughs> and I keep going over things again and again. And I look at people with a lot more forgiveness than I used to, a lot more compassion. I think that's the one thing that's really ripened in me over the years is a sense of compassion and forgiveness. But it isn't easy. I mean, I can't just say, oh, I forgive you in a light way. I, have, I think I had to write a novel about my mother in order to really truly forgive her from my spirit, my heart. Mm -hmm. And I, now I, I really love her. I mean, I realize how much love she gave me and how much I couldn't accept too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of feel the same way about my parents. I see my parents these days more as friends than I do parents. Um, and to me, that's a closer and even closer relationship from my perspective. Uh, because they've given me so much and the conversations we have had, I've even had them on this program, uh, though that program has not been released and will not will only be released uh, posthumously uh, from their perspective, because my mother has told me, no, you may not air that. <laughs> really? Oh, but I'm hoping in maybe because uh, see, I plan to be a, I plan to live to be 100. OK, really have to I have to outlive my great grandmother on my mother's side. Uh, she lived to be 100. And at her age of 95, I was telling people I was going to outlive her. But she was making it really hard. Not that I wanted <laughs> her to die. Don't get me wrong. 
Uh, so I've made the commitment to stay healthy, well, and strong all the way through into my hundreds. So I'm sure that by that time, uh, my parents will have transitioned to the next world, at which time I will be able to uh, let people hear my parents' voice and uh, that conversation that we had talking about a myriad of different things. But I see them uh, and even uh, folks who are uh, older than myself, and when I say that, I mean by uh, 20, 30, 40 years, and obviously then they're in there up to uh, close to 100, as, um, in a matter of speaking, receptacles of wisdom that I really need to be listening to. Uh, more so than when we were in our, uh, uh, say, teens and early 20s when our parents were saying, look, I am trying to help you not make the mistakes that I made, which is virtually impossible because in many instances we have to make our own mistakes. We have to have our own experiences in order to really sometimes to really get it. And if we could get it osmosisly, if that's a word, from from other people, that would be terrific. But there's a certain aspect of boringness to that concept because then we don't we don't really get the lesson. You know how I'm not going to give you the answer, but but I'm going to give you some clues to the answer to your question. You know, because if I just give it to you, then of what value is the answer to you? So I think there's a certain element of value in those lessons that we learn through the experiences that we have. Have you found that to be the case or uh, um, did yes, you learn a lot from other people? Are very, very hard. Yeah. I said, I, Judy Miller, I saw the show that she was on the other day and mm -hmm. I listened to it and she said something that stuck in my mind. She said, if you look at regret and you try to pull out a regret from the whole fabric of your life, the fabric unwinds. You would not be who you were are today without that regret, which can be very sad, but very true. Well, I say that all the time, almost word for word. The woman's uh, plagiarizing me. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but no, she's absolutely right. Uh, and I often, I often, that's what I tell people on this program. You know, that's why regrets are, you know, yeah, it would be nice if we could go back. But then if you did, you've changed everything. And now you're not the person you were. Yeah. Um, and I like the person I am. And as much as I may not like certain experiences I had growing up and, and coming to this age and this place and time, um, I had them. They're part of my life, the dark and the light. Are, are your stories uh, intermixed or do you have some novels? Uh, and you, it appears you have, what, seven present novels? I have five. And five. I have Three um, more planned in my mind, at least. So I was jumping ahead there. Um, yes. I, I intuitively knew question. something. Excuse me? <laughs> I said I intuitively knew something. Yeah, you did. You were um, picking up on that. Are, are, are your stories, uh, you, do you try to keep them, them light uh, and so forth? Or do you kind of drift over a little bit into, shall we say, the dark side of of uh, of of human beings and so forth because I mean that is kind of what we're made of is both light and dark you know we have and then the gray in the middle that kind of stuff what uh, where would you where would you place your your novels and maybe each one's a little different in that regard on that scale of light to dark I'd say they're pretty dark okay uh, because I don't see people in terms of black and white I see people 
in all their complexity, or at least I try to. And so I see the shadow aspect, what Jungian call, Jung would call the shadow aspect mm -hmm. of people. And I think in my own work and in my own life, I've been trying to integrate the two. And so many of my characters, you can't classify as either good or bad, and it makes people uneasy. I'd probably have a lot more readers if I just made my work lighter, and if I made some characters purely good and some purely evil. Well, I, I guarantee you that there are people out there who like reading uh, the more shadowy or dark types of stories. But tell me about, in, and then I say this in a general way, tell me about the endings of these stories. Do they, do they usually end with, and they lived happily ever after, or uh, usually unresolved? Um, because one of the things I have found so fascinating, and I absolutely enjoy, especially movies that have a surprise ending you did not expect, and I mean literally did not expect, um, Midnight in Paris, oh, yes. a Woody Allen film, I really thought, and as spoiler alert, folks, I really thought it was going to end differently than it did. But I was so gratified when it didn't. I'm going, I'm sad for the character, but I'm elated as the viewer because it, it, it was a surprise all the way to the end. Is that, I'm trying to remember the movie where there are a couple meet and then they don't get together at the end. Yeah. And they telephone each other. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and Owen Wilson, I believe, was the, was the lead, was the male character lead in this Woody Allen film. And I'm just thinking, thank you, Woody. Thank you for creating a film that doesn't end stereotypically. The, you know, boy finds girl, boy gets girl, boy loses girl, and then boy gets girl back. And it didn't, it didn't work that way. Yeah. Because life isn't that way. I mean, hell, I, I've had uh, a number of uh, crushes uh, mm. in my, uh, throughout my, my years, my short little years here on this planet. Uh, I wish had gone the other way, but they didn't. And if they had gone the other way. Well, you and I probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. It kind of goes back to that whole regret thing and wishing yeah. things had gone a different way. Yeah. Do you do you ever find true. that happen in your stories where you're you're moving along in a particular path and all of a sudden you're you're led to take the story in a little bit different direction than maybe your your personal mind thought it was going to go or should go? It especially happened with this last novel, Suburban Souls. And yeah, I hear what you're saying about if, you know, if I'd had a crush on this person and it had worked out, then my whole life would have been entirely different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Very much. What are your thoughts on, um, they say from a metaphysical standpoint, they say that at every point along your life, when you make a choice, when you choose a particular direction to go, that your you, the, your consciousness follows that choice you've made, but your you have then a divergent path that continues to exist, uh, almost like other dimensions. Have you ever have you ever gone down that road? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting point. So you do you mean that you're leading multiple lives? Yeah, and what happens is as your life goes on and on and on, and you're 81. You, do you know that you have 
hundreds of thousands, if not millions of alternate lives that are currently being lived because of every choice that you made up to this point? That sends chills down my spine. <laughs> it really does. Do you think, do you, is that what you think, Richard? I think so. And then I have to wonder sometimes if our dreams, uh, you know, aren't maybe made up of some of those alternate paths. I had a dream last night. I rarely, rarely do I remember my dreams. Uh, but I was uh, abruptly awoken at around 4.30 in the morning. And I actually remembered the dream I was having where my wife and I were attending this very swanky, very um, formal affair, this, this, this uh, 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 party, if you will, or gathering. Women were in long gowns. Everybody was dressed to the nines. They were beautiful. And, and we were being introduced and mingling around. And that's the, the right now, that's about all I can remember. I might have to have a friend of mine who does hypnosis take me back to the dream to bring it all out. Because I really wish I hadn't have been woken abruptly. But odds are, if I hadn't been awoken abruptly, I probably wouldn't have remembered it. Because I usually don't remember my dreams. But I sometimes think, could that have been an alternate yeah. path that I could have taken? That is interesting. The idea that you might have been living in that alternate life, going to this wonderful festification yeah yeah i mean it was it was very cool uh do you remember your dreams sometimes i do when i try to or sometimes i have floods of dreams and sometimes i don't and recently i've been dreaming about my parents my f former husband and these dreams have been quite banal boring i mean back in my old Westbury Long Island house where I grew up in the kitchen washing dishes or something very boring. Mm -hmm. So these have been boring dreams, but I have also had very bizarre dreams and all kinds of dreams I've had. Yeah. But you, when you uh, classify your dreams as boring in that context, they might be boring on one level to some people, but for you, they're not boring from the standpoint that don't they resurrect sort of some yes. emotions from the past that are that maybe warm and friendly and comforting and that kind of thing? What makes me think that my, my parents and my former husband, who all three have passed on, are with me somehow in spirit, that they're mm. coming to me in dreams because they're actually with me in some dimension. So, yeah, there's that. Any and then also, go ahead, go ahead. In terms of regret, I often think, now that I'm going to be 82, I think, now, if I had done X instead of Y three years ago, how different my life would have been. And it does bring up a lot of regrets, too. And also a lot of things that, you know, thank God I didn't. Thank <laughs> God I've been saved by some kind of fire force. <laughs> Well, and it is very interesting as, as we all get older, we look back we look back because there's a lot, there's a lot more to look back on than there was 10 or 20 or 30 years ago. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I, 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 myself, I mean, I look back on my first marriage. I look back on, uh, uh, my early days uh, in, uh, in broadcasting. I look back even on my teen years in high school and, and uh, even going back to grade school uh, where there were the bullies and everything. And then I find out from a friend, my best friend uh, from grade school, high school and college, 
uh, we communicate every so often, and he shared with me not too long ago that certain of the bullies had passed away, you know, mm. which shocked the daylights out of me because I thought they'd never die, you know, and I never <laughs> wanted them to. But, I, you know, it's one of those things where you think, really? That's, that's not possible, you know, because the memories are still they're still fresh when you go back and re- revisit them. And yet there's a certain sadness there. When he told me that, I, I was like, wow, that's that's too bad. You know, um, I, I never never sought any kind of revenge or retribution or, you know, I hope, boy, I hope their karma really comes back to get them, you know, because then I set up karma for myself when just doing that, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. But at the same time, I've learned so much about bullies and the fact that they're actually more afraid than the one they're bullying from from the psychology department, if you will. Uh, that's something that has come out, that the bully actually is more afraid than the person they're they're pushing around, that they're harassing and so forth. Uh, and so then the question is, what is it that you're so afraid of that makes you behave this way? You know, what's going on? Now, I I make the statement, I'm not asking you to change. God forbid that you change one iota of who you are, because that is not my place. I just want to understand. I just want to understand so I can put it in context, and now I can move on. Now I understand where he's coming from. I get it. You know, he had this childhood. He had this trauma, trauma, and it sent him down that particular path. And I just happened to be on his path at that time. Okay. And it could have been somebody else and not me, but it was me. And now I understand where he was coming from. And now I can let that go and I can move on and he can move on or she can move on. I mean, I had two girl bullies in grade school. And when we went on a field trip to uh, Huntington beach and Disneyland, um, I got out into the surf and I got an undertow that pulled me down and started pulling me out to sea. Hmm. It was those two girls that grabbed me and pulled me out of the water. Okay? And I I was shocked because they didn't like me. And yet they saved my life. At least I think that's probably what they did do. I knew how to swim then too. But, I mean, we're talking about my first experience with the ocean. So uh, it's just really interesting when we go back and we take a look at those kinds of things. And we can sort of put an understanding to these events you have characters in your books that are able that do you ever um, do they ever do any reflecting in that regard? Is that part of any any part of the scenario? Uh, yes, they do quite a lot of reflecting and thinking. I do think so. And in terms of bullies, I think of that old famous book by Laura Huxley, "You Are Not the Target." I think it was published back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And I realized when pe- when I'm having a lot of anger in me that's just unresolved, I'm liable to take it out on some poor, innocent person. And when I see people being angry at me, I have to realize, hey, what have they been wounded by? What's, what's hurting them? And I'm yeah. standing in the way. Yeah. Or on the other hand, maybe it can be they're looking at me and they're seeing some aspect of themselves they don't want to recognize. And so they're. That is another aspect. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. Uh, And we can put that um, uh, process, if you will, on anyone in our lives. And and it can be locally or 
It can be globally. I mean, I mean, with the internet and everything. I do have to say, I'm curious, uh, is your process internet-based or at least computer-based where you you are typing into a keyboard or are you really old school and you're still using a typewriter? I wish I had a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I, I write by hand and then sometimes I write by computer. I prefer to write longhand, but it takes so long and more and more these days I'm writing with the computer. Mm-hmm. And social media has been just awful for me. I don't, I hate social, social media. I hate it and yet I'm part of it. Ah. And, I, and I'm not very good with it. I don't know how to deal with Instagram or Twitter or all these many things or Facebook. It's just overwhelming for me, too much stimuli. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I have a Twitter account and every time I post an interview such as this one, uh, to SoundCloud, it gives me the option to send out a notification. Now, I can do it via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Um, I could even do it via email if I wanted to. And so I send out a tweet each time an interview is posted. I mm. do not have a Facebook account. I signed up two times. I deleted it both times. I just, I have no, I have no desire to be a part of that crowd myself. Hmm. Uh, I have an Instagram account, but I, mom, I was told that I could even do postings of these interviews there, but I haven't found the mechanism within the software yet and the website to do that. But maybe if I find it or I'll talk to somebody who does that and then maybe I'll do that because I'm getting to the point where I'm about ready to delete that account too, because why should I have it if I'm not using it, if I can't put it to yeah. use for this program and this this uh, this path that we're on of basically trying to change the world. I'm curious as to your philosophy about the world today. You've lived through 81 years of it. My parents, obviously, uh, you know, another 10 years or so. And I have to say that I am frustrated with the way things have gone over just the last 40 of my life years, not personally, but in terms of other people that I, that, that there's so much inequity in the world today. And I've personally believe that needs to change. I know my father has been at many times over the last 20 or 30 years, very frustrated over the fact that things really haven't changed since his family was still living at, at uh, his, at their home on uh, East Hubble street in Phoenix, Arizona. So I'm curious about your perspective. Are you optimistic, pessimistic, half gla glass, half full, half empty? Does the glass uh, have a crack in it? <laughs> what a question. Well, I never used to watch the news. I, I you know, I, I watch occasionally, but now I find myself getting hooked on the news. It's like this dra Greek drama going on. Mm -hmm. Um, I can get very discouraged and then I begin thinking in terms of a larger historical perspective, mm -hmm. perspective, you know, there was the ancient Greeks, there were the ancient Romans, there were us, we will perish. The next civilization will come up. I begin to see it in a larger sense and it's not exactly cheerful, but it's not exactly tragic. It's just, this is the way it is. I'm, I'm one little blob here and my life is this tiny little grain of sand and there's these millions of grains of sands 
And yet what I do somehow matters. Yeah, that's that's the perplexing phrase you've just uttered. Uh, my life matters. I came to that conclusion. I It's something that I know within my heart. Okay, it's not something I believe. It's something I know. My life matters. Because if it didn't, uh, A, I wouldn't be doing this interview. And B, let's just say I was, I'd say, yeah, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go out, rape, plunder, and pillage because my life doesn't matter. It's all an accident. None of this is is relevant. And when we die, it's just lights out. Well, I do feel there's some kind of a higher force. And the way that a plant grows because it's nourished with love, with the universe. So are we growing very much feeling protected at times by our higher force. When my daughter was born, I definitely felt there were guardian angels around her mm. because her birth could have been a tragedy. I was living in Paris with her father, my first husband, and I was so ignorant. I knew my water had broken and I didn't really know what that meant. I was alone in Paris and very young. And I knew I had to get to the hospital. And he said, oh, wait, I've got to finish this plumbing project and then I've got to change my clothes. And I knew I couldn't. And I something just pulled me by the scruff of the neck and pushed me down the stairs at a precise moment. Not too soon, not too late. I had to go at that moment. And at the moment I walked into the courtyard of our French apartment building, a woman entered. She was the only woman in blocks around who spoke English. And I said, help me, I've got to get to a hospital. And she was well-dressed. She was able to flag down a taxi, which was not an easy thing to do during the rush hour. And she got me to the hospital and my daughter was born 20 minutes later. I mean, it was such a close call. And again, I felt all this time that there were just guardian angels surrounding her. Mm. And the thing is that my husband and my daughter, almost before she was born, all three of us were in contact with each other. He was very psychic too, although he was very disturbed. But he somehow was communicating with her. She was communicating with us. Really interesting. Mm. You know, uh, there was a time when I was growing up when my mother said to me, uh, and I, I felt that this was a private message from her uh, to me. She said that um, <clears throat> uh, I knew from the very beginning that you were a special child. Mm. And I, I believed that. I thought I was very unique as far as the family was concerned. And it wasn't until years later, and it didn't change anything for me. It really didn't. I wasn't offended or put off or anything when I found out that the other five siblings had been told exactly the same thing. But my mother was right. Yeah. Because each one of us was different. We had these different personalities. Um, I, I have a brother who has a totally different philosophical outlook on life both probably religiously or spiritually, politically, uh, and so on and so forth. And, and that's the way he is. And there's no judgment on my part. He's still my brother and will be until the day we die. And, and, and my personal belief is, too, that, that 
you know, we we associate with a certain, as as is said in in some circles, a certain cluster of of uh, we'll call them essences or entities or spirits that that inhabit mm-hmm. the bodies. Uh, and some of them are closer than others. Some of them have been uh, uh, fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, co-workers, et cetera, et cetera. And that changes as you go from one lifetime to the next. Mm. Uh, so he is in this world, in this lifetime, he, uh, he's my brother. And, mm. and uh, I'm his. And I haven't always been the best brother in the world from the standpoint of being really close you know, I mean, we grew up, we had our skirmishes. We also played together too, uh, but we also had our different, our interests were different. And so we went different ways, especially as we went through grade school into high school into college. Uh, and so I think that I- I'm wondering about your characters, though they don't necessarily take on physical form other than in the context of a a book, a hard copy book. Okay. They may not have physical bodies. Do you ever get the sense that they are, they're real? And, and, uh, do you ever find yourself (laughs) in a quandary as to, you you feel this, this, uh, oh my God, this person is disgusting. I mean, how could they be this way? And yet you're the one that is in a manner of speaking, you say you channel them, uh, but they're coming through you, and you're putting this down on paper. You ever, you ever uh, start passing judgment on your characters? That's a good question. You know, I channeled a lot more when I was much younger, and sometimes what came through was rather frightening. And I think I decided to close most of it off as I grew older, uh. because sometimes I felt that the entities that were contacting themselves through me, I didn't want around me. Max was a different, now Max, the character, I, the old Jewish man that I channeled was, yeah. And I think sometimes I'm not aware that I'm channeling it. I'm not aware that the characters are taking over, but suddenly they will take on a life of their own and do something unexpected. Mm. What about in your own family? Did you feel that your mother really understood you, heard you, saw you? Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Um, and I have to tell you that these days, uh, when we would visit them, we were able to physically visit them. And we did a year ago, uh, 2019, we actually drove out to Phoenix with our tra- travel trailer and um, we got to visit them. And every time we say goodbye, as we're departing, go our separate ways, like us going, coming home, she would, I, in the hug, she would say, not, I love you, Richard. She would say, I love you, son. And I don't know why that feels more personal to me, but it just does. Yeah. And your father? My father, uh, he, uh, he tells me he loves me. He tells me, he tells the other kids as well. You know, they both express that. They share that with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're both very demonstrative in that regard, even though my dad, he's having a little more trouble getting around and so forth. He's gotten shorter, <laughs> which is pretty typical as one gets gets up into his age bracket. Um, the one thing that I sort of miss about him, uh, even though he's still here, the one thing that I haven't been able to get a hold on, and I'm not going to press it 
is his personal or spiritual life, his inner life. Now, for example, we've talked a little bit about yours and your philosophy and so forth. But my dad's is personal and private to him. And I honor him in that. He has every right to. You don't have to. First of all, because I don't think he wants to put it out there to have to justify it. We don't have to justify our, our personal philosophies and beliefs. They are what they are. And, and when you start putting them out there and people say, well, yeah, but what about this and this and this? Then all of a sudden you're having to defend yourself. Why, why, why do we do that to each other? You believe what you believe. I believe yeah. what I believe. And I shared that with one of my sisters, my eldest sister. Mm-hmm. And um, I said that my beliefs of yesterday are not my beliefs of today, are not my beliefs of tomorrow because I'm still alive. I'm still growing. I'm still experiencing. Yeah. I'm still alive, you know. So, you know, I, I, I would love it. If we could just let people have their experiences, have their philosophies without passing judgment. I mean, look at look at where we are in this country alone. Yeah. Where we don't let people have their own their own positions on things, you know? Yeah, it's so true. It's so hard. It's really hard to let to really let people have their own beliefs and if they're very different from your own and say, okay, this is what their world is. And this is their, what they see and believe. And then I see all the wars that were fought because of religion, the Spanish inquisition, the Mm. crusades uh, and the war that we're having right now in this country, really between the conservative Trump and the Biden camps. Right. Yeah. um, It's, it's unfortunate. Yeah, um, it's been hard for me to get around the fact that, say, someone is a Trump supporter, somebody that I can be very fond of, and yet I have to see, well, what's, what do they see through the vision? What is their lens? How do they see the world? What mm-hmm. are they being surrounded by? And what what kind of propaganda is surrounding me? What am I not seeing? So I have to say, you know, just look. and that's And that's a pretty brave position to take. To say, what am I not seeing? Yeah. Not what are what are they not seeing? How could they not see this? What am I not seeing? You know, I hear this comment from some people who say, oh, I can see both sides. But you're taking a particular position. You're taking a side. If you see both sides, how can you take a side? You can't. I mean, that's my perspective. You can't take a side. But, you know, that's just me. Um, but I do. I see know, I, both sides and I still take a side. Sure. And, and I think we all do that. And, and because part of it is we want to belong. We want to belong. And I have to say that uh, that during the uh, uh, during this last campaign, uh, when he was uh, holding rallies inside in different places during the pandemic, when he was in Phoenix, um, I was watching a news feed. And they were showing the commentators in the foreground, giving commentary on what was going on in the background down on the floor of the church. And then this was going on in Phoenix. And I felt I felt hurt. I felt left out and I felt alone. It had nothing to do with politics. It had to do with what if I wanted to write a letter expressing my concerns that, you know, I'm scared. I'm really uh, afraid of blah, 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 blah. I, and I'm basically saying in the letter, I need comfort. I need comfort from 
at this point in our history, uh, this father figure or uh, who's supposed to be a father figure. And I already knew that either to be tossed in the trash or I'd get a form letter. And, and yet we've had presidents down through history who have received letters and actually responded personally to mm-hmm. many of them. And I knew that I wouldn't get that and that I, I couldn't go down to the floor of that place and feel like I belonged. Mm-hmm. And that's what hurt me more than anything else. And someone would say, well, yeah, if you just change your way of thinking, why should I have to change my way of thinking to want to belong? That's, I think it's like my dad, if my dad just suddenly turned his back on me at the age of 89 or 90, he says, I want nothing to, you're dead to me. As you hear, I hear this often from the the Jewish community, from the stereotypical things where the father will say, I'm sorry, but you are no longer my son. You are dead to me. Oh, God. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about this aspect of, of belonging, of wanting to be accepted and part of the group regardless of what you think or believe yeah that's very strong and yet i think i've gotten hardened because from the very beginning i never felt part of a group and i missed it but we weren't we were jewish but we didn't belong to a jewish organization i mm-hmm. We didn't belong to anything. I went to my friends' different Sunday schools, but I was always an outsider. My family was an outsider among the families in the suburb where we lived. My father was a sculptor. Nobody else was a sculptor. Um, I always felt very much of an outsider. And then in school, I also felt an outsider, Mm -hmm. even when I had friends. And I think there was a, I, what I missed was I wanted to be long to some group where I could really have faith and I couldn't have faith. I didn't have faith because it was lacking and I had to develop some kind of personal faith. Mm. So it's been very individual. So I, I think belonging to a group, I don't know, I now have a small group of friends. I guess I could say I belong to a group. And I've been certainly part of groups in the past, but there's always the feeling of I want to, I almost want to be on the outside. I almost fear groups. Yeah, that's funny because um, my brother and I were having this conversation many years ago. Um, uh, and it was right around my 33rd birthday, I think. And we were actually out in the desert. Uh, and we were out in the desert because we were at a family reunion at the Elks Lodge down uh, in uh, near, I think, Coolidge or Florence, Arizona. And um, we were out there just walking and talking. And I was sharing this and that and the other thing with him. And we both expressed this sentiment. And when we expressed that, I think it changed a lot for both of us. And that was mm-hmm. that we both expressed the fact that we each as individuals, my brother and I felt as though we we're the black sheep of the family. Interesting. And that, so that bonded the two of you. I think to a degree it did. We, we, it's like, wait a minute. You thought you were the black sheep? Uh, I th- always thought I was the black sheep. And it's like, well, apparently we weren't. 
because we both can't be the black sheep of the family. There's usually only one. <laughs> Is this the brother that you said was so different from you? Yes. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say more about being an outsider. Please. Um, what is it I'm trying to say about the fact that whenever I've been part of a group, at some point I want to draw back. For instance, Buddhist meditation has been very important to me. In fact, prolonged sitting meditation, sort of Zen style meditation has really been the key to opening up creativity. And so I'm part of a Buddhist Sangha. But at a certain point, there's a part that I just draw back and I say, no, I don't go along with this. So I think whatever group I'm in, unless it's a very small group of, say, two other friends, which is, and it's a triad, or three friends, any large group that is an organization, I'm going to find myself having reservations and drawing back. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's different. And then the feeling of being bonded. Yeah, my younger brother and I thought we were both, we were the both black black sheep of the family. <laughs> but yeah, that's an interesting, that bonded you, that feeling that, yeah, we're together in this, even we're so different. Yeah. Yeah. One of um, the things that um, I have such appreciation of my parents for is the fact that they allowed each one of us six kids to go in whatever direction that we wanted to go even before we got through the formal first 12 years. Um, mm-hmm. They acknowledged, the, you know, just by their actions that we were each, six of us were each individuals and that we weren't going to turn out the same. But there, there is a certain sameness about us in that we all... I think we all honor and respect each other and the paths that the other has gone on to, 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 to fulfill. I, I shared with my brother how much I respected him and honored him for his ability to take my parents, maybe 15 years ago, take my parents to China. He was working in China for Disney, building the uh, amusement park. I believe it was in Hong Kong or maybe it was Beijing. I forget which. Anyway, he took them there for like a a two-week vacation. I Mm -hmm. I can't do that. But I'm not feeling as though I'm less than him. I feel like, wow, I am so proud of my brother for for doing that. I mean, that wasn't cheap. I know, you know. Um, and I thought it was great. And my parents got to have that experience. That's, I, I just, it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't envy my brother, his path in spite of the fact that maybe he's making more money than me. Cause that's not what's important. And I think that's the aspect that my parents instilled in all of us, that mm-hmm. it isn't about the things that we have or the money that we make or the positions that we hold it's that we hold ourselves as well as others with respect and honor and appreciation and love, especially mm. within the family, you know, eight of eight, eight of us. Uh, during the holidays, I often think back to those Christmases when we would walk around the neighborhood singing Christmas carols. Mm. You know, we were all bundled. Most of the time we were bundled up. There were some Christmases that were a little warmer than others. I mean, again, we're talking Phoenix, Arizona here. 
Um, I do remember one Christmas we did actually get snow on the front lawn. Uh, so, um, you know, but it's, it's those elements of life, community, belonging, as you were talking about wanting to belong. I joined the Baha'i faith for a year and a half because mm-hmm. I wanted to, to belong. That was also the reason why I decided not to stay because I had joined for the wrong reason. At least in my mind, I had joined under false pretenses. I was being accepted. I was being loved and drawn in. And that was a wonderful thing. But that's not the reason that you join, let's say, a a philosophical community. At least it shouldn't be the sole reason. It should be because of the philosophy. And I just couldn't make that final step that they wanted me to. But I loved what the founder of the Baha'i Faith, Baha'u'llah, said. If you accept one of the messengers of God, you accept them all. If you reject one of the messengers of God, you reject them all. Interesting. And that was something that I have held on to ever since. And that's why I try to have this understanding. And I want to learn about it. I mean, I don't know enough. I know a little about Hanukkah. I, f- I thought it was a big deal one year. I'm going, yeah, I want to hear about Hanukkah. I said, well, Richard, you're focusing on a, a minor uh, holiday. That's not what's. That's not the real biggie in the Jewish tradition. Um, but, I, I, you know, I've learned about it. I've learned about other aspects. I want to know more about the Muslim faith. I remember interviewing a gentleman who um, <clears throat> was uh, working to uh, sort of bring Muslims and Christians together because he felt that Christ- Muslims and Christians had more in common than did Christians and Jews. Uh, mm. And so I did the interview. My boss at that time listened to the interview, and his first question was, are you a Muslim? First of all, I was shocked at the question, like, really? That's your takeaway from the interview? But I said, no, I, I'm just curious. I, and I, I, I really am. Um, mm-hmm. I want to know more about Buddhism. I mean, I love, I love the story of, uh, of Siddhartha, uh, who became the Buddha, uh, mm-hmm. who finally, he did the one thing we all need to do, don't we, Maria? And that is we need to stop. If we're trying to find something, we need to stop. Because as soon as we stop looking for it, it usually shows up. <laughs> You ever find that, uh, you know, the, the old saying that, where did you find your ring or the book or this? Well, I found it in the last place I looked. I always tell people, you know, once I find it, I keep looking. So it's not the last place I looked. <laughs> tell, I'm not, I don't know the story of Siddhartha. What is the story? Of Siddhartha? Well, he was looking for enlightenment. And, and he was going every with this way and that way, going up this road and that road and doing all of this stuff. And finally, he came to the Bodhi tree, exhausted, like, oh, I'm never going to find it. And he sat down. Oh, and, and as soon as he sat down, it hit him. Oh, yeah. This I have heard. Just, yeah. Yeah. And that's what we need to do. Yeah. Well, I know that in my first novel, Longing, I mean, I, the Dark Plums, which was really the first novel. The heroine, who's been a prostitute, been saved by the Jewish guy, is in a synagogue, and she wants to be Jewish, but she realizes that her fa- she's gone, she swung too far out. She can never join. She can never be part of that group. And in many ways, I felt that too. 
not only with Jewish groups, but with other groups. But there was, I do remember one ecstatic time, the first time I really felt part of a group and that I was wholeheartedly part of it was, I had a breakdown when I was 19 and I was in a mental hospital. And it was a run by, it was a Jewish run hospital. So there had a Seder and I had never been to a Seder before. And I guess I was 19 and there was this joyous feeling of being part of a group, wholeheartedly part of a group. It was a kind of ecstatic time, just an ecstatic evening. And yeah, but you were raised as a Catholic, I understand, and that mm -hmm. gives a whole different structure, a whole different foundation. Is the guilt still there? Okay. Jewish or Catholic, guilt is still there. The suffering yeah. is still there. <laughs> but you were given a kind of a structural set of beliefs, a structure of how to live one's life, mm -hmm. perhaps. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, some of it uh, I've held on to uh, because, you know, it, it just fits. It serves me. And I, I think that's what uh, one of the keys for maybe shifting and changing one's beliefs, one's philosophy, and that is if it serves you. If it no longer serves you, then you need to kind of let it go and, and maybe find something else that does. Um, yeah. And that to, that, to me, that's fascinating. It's hard to let go. It, it is. It is hard. Have it's you, really hard. Have you, uh, again, in, in these moments of retrospect that we've talked about earlier, have you ever, uh, looking back and going, Wow, I, I used to believe that. I, I don't anymore. Um, that's a good question. It really is. I know my former husband, my first husband was raised as a Catholic. And the man I'm currently with was raised as a Catholic. And both of them have left, but they still have that structure. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know the answer to that question that you just asked, really. Mm -hmm. Well, um, to me, it's it is uh, an interesting process that we go through. I I remember when I was in my early days at the Christian radio station I worked for back in Phoenix, where I was struggling with the concept of hell and the devil and everything, and I was doing all kinds of research as well on an intellectual level. Uh, to try to figure out and, and get some answers to my questions, and the more I searched. And the more I questioned, the more it didn't make any sense to me. And it took me about five years. It took me about five years to let go of the belief in a literal devil or Satan and hell, mm. which also yeah. meant that there was no literal heaven, okay? Uh, not, in the, not in the context of the Christian, uh, um, uh, uh, shall we say, protocol, so to speak. And... When I get into conversations with people who want to bring up the whole aspect of evil, mm. I, I am drawn to what I believe is the Jewish understanding from the Old Testament, the Torah. There is no literal devil. That when you, when you read about this, this aspect, if you will, it is what is considered to be, and again, I paraphrase this, I'm hoping I'm correct, it is the deepest, it is the, it is the lowest base nature of man. 
that mm. there is no outside force, that it is an internal dark, 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 dark part of, of humanity, if you will, of the human being. And some mm. people live there. We've seen them down through history. Some people don't. They live in the very, very light side and others live there. You know, you can you you referenced Hitler earlier. Uh, Mother Teresa, she lived on the light side. You know, I mean, I haven't heard any scuttlebutt about any scandals surrounding Mother Teresa, uh, you know, (laughs) since since her passing. I I have to tell you, too, by the way, I was I have to say I was so privileged one year when she was visiting Phoenix. Our radio station was covering an event at the Coliseum where the Suns used to play, Phoenix Suns basketball team used to play. And I was in this woman's presence. I mean, Mm. it was just amazing. Same thing with Pope John Paul II when he was in Phoenix. He was up on the balcony at uh, um, the Basilica there in Phoenix. And we were across the street on the roof of the Civic Plaza. And we got to see him uh, and be in his presence. You know, so it's, it's like, who are you going it's not so much who are you going to serve is is as much as who are you going to be you know the old native yeah. american story about uh you know the 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 white the the white wolf and the dark wolf and which one's going to live well which one are you going to feed hmm interesting yeah the sense of who you are and I know when I was growing up, well, I can feel very much people's energies. I mean, some people just have a really positive, wonderful energy and you feel it and they don't need to say anything. Just they kind of emit kind of an aura. Mm-hmm. As you said, the way Pope, the Pope did or St. Teresa, these people, they, you know, they just emit a kind of radiance. Yeah. yeah. It is, and, again, quite remarkable. Uh, what we what we discover in people. And then I think about emotions. I was on a Buddhist retreat and someone had come after me because I was escaping. I was in the women's wing and a woman came after me. And I felt this huge emotion. First, I was enraged at her. And then suddenly it shifted the energy and I turned and I came and I hugged her because that w- I realized that underneath what I labeled the emotion was some kind of energy and the energy shifted at that moment. And so again, this brings me back to who are you as opposed to what are you on the surface of the world? What? And that was hard for me because when I was growing up, so much was emphasized on how do you appear to the outside world? What have you accomplished in terms of external goals? And so little was, you know, what's on the inside of you. And that took me a long time. And that's why we encourage people, specifically during this decade, uh, to go within. The decade of perfect vision. We had the first year, 2020, as the year of perfect vision. But the inner vision, uh, Do you have you found it? a struggle over the years to go back uh, to a, a sort of um, 
commiserate, reminisce, if you will, about certain experiences, uh, maybe more on the the gray or dark side, uh, your shadow side, shall we say, uh, sort of uh, accepting, yeah, that's that's who I am. You know, I may not be emotionally uh, or uh, personally proud of it, but it's part of who I am now. You know, it's just is. It just is what it is. Yeah, I look back. And I also see how I'm the same, but I've changed so much. I think I'm not the same person I was when I was five years old or 10 or 15 or 20. And I look back and it's a way of hanging on, of not letting go. And at the same time, I need to look back and integrate, but not dwell on it so obsessively that I can't go forward. Mm. But yeah, I look back look back yeah a lot at this age which of your novels addresses that subject or at least touches on it or one of the characters might go in that kind of direction uh, are there I think, are, oh sorry I, no go ahead go ahead please oh i think um eleanor the character in dying unfinished the mother who's about to die do you remember the movie um with uh, Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks where they were in the life review. They both had died. She was having the time of her life eating whatever she wanted, having the experiences she wanted. He was freaking out because of his life's review. Uh, Really? Yeah. He was freaking out. She was having the best time. (laughs) You know, totally opposite experiences. And, uh, you know, and it's like they weren't judging him in his in his life review. They just wanted him to see what his life was all about. That's all. They wanted him to get it. You know, there wasn't a pass fail kind of thing. And yet she was just beside herself with glee and joy because it was so much fun. And that's not to say that, that every time she had a life review, when they went through a certain section of her life, that she was happy about it. Sometimes she came out and she might have been crying or very sad or or what have you. But she would finally work through that and then move on to getting back excited about the smorgasbord table that was set before her. Uh, she could eat all the chocolate cake and what have you that she wanted and not gain a pound. All of that stuff. It was so it was so funny. If you haven't seen it, you really should. Uh, it's probably on uh, Netflix or maybe Prime or whatever other service that we we now subscribe to. I still remember there were only three channels and a black and white. <laughs> What's the name of the movie? I believe it is called Life Review, but if you if you um, if you Google Meryl Streep and Albert Brooks movies, um, mm-hmm. you know you'll I'm sure it'll pop up. But that's what it's about. Yeah, that is interesting how they had such totally 180 degree difference. Yeah. In what you're looking at, I know my brother, my younger brother, is writing a kind of memoir called "Bright Moments" about moments of his life that were particularly wonderful. He's a musician, so yes. Well, I want to thank you, Maria, for for spending this time with us, a lot of time, and I really appreciate you giving us this much time to converse about the work that you're doing. The website, of course, is mariaespinosa.com. 
We encourage people to go there. We will be linked to your website as well so that people can uh, find out more about you, find out about the current five novels, soon to be maybe seven or eight down the road here. <laughs> Okay. I hope. I hope so. Well, we'll we'll be looking forward to those, and for also sharing yourself with us here on the program, your story, and uh, and what is so about your life. And thank you for being with us. And thank you so much for having me, Richard. It's been a real real honor. A I pleasure. Have, I do have three final questions that I do want to ask you. Before I do, I want to let our listeners know and our viewers, those watching on YouTube, that um, you can hear these programs on uh, richarddugan.com on Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. and Monday mornings at 1 a.m. The podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations you are reposting our interviews too. Thanks for doing that. We're also on YouTube, so you can go to the YouTube channel, Richard Dugan, and tell me your story. Just look for the guy with the hat. And um, so we hope you'll do that. Participate in... The Decade of Perfect Vision, the 2020s, uh, and uh, spend that time going within. Yeah, I, I, I understand that looking at your dark side and so forth, that's a little scary. I get that. Uh, you know, there are times when I do that and it's like, I wish I hadn't gone there, but you do. And it's, it's, who makes you, it's what makes you who you are today. Try not to pass too much judgment on yourself. You're okay. Life is good. And also go to Maria espinosa.com and uh, even get a copy of any one of her novels including her latest which is suburban soul and before we let our guest go the first of three questions is who is maria espinosa who am i i'm myself <laughs> <laughs> What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now? Um, I think I want to enlarge people's awareness and enlarge their consciousness and their sympathy, their compassion. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Life purpose, I think, to grow in compassion, actually, and in love. And the means through which I have to do it or have had to do it so far is a lot through writing mm. and, and living and being with other people and having a daughter. Well, again, thank you so much. And uh, you know, and I both, you and I both know that we are never alone. And I thank you so much for sharing yourself with us today on the program. Thank you. I thank you for listening and watching tell me your story new paradigms for a new world we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true and until our next broadcast podcast video cast love to lol